Welcome to Mechanation. The arrows of podcast will be unleashed by my co-hosts, PMC Trilogy. Hello, hello. And Stephen Hero. What's up, everyone? I am Ignis Mannix, and today we wrap up the Mechanation's coverage of Giant Robo. This is our famous post-mortem episodes where we go over... Uh, Listener emails and questions, uh, we wrap up our own thoughts, and we introduce what's coming up next. But before we do any of that, how, how are you guys doing today? Are, are you, 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 you doing all right on this? This is a Monday-ass Monday, I gotta say. I know I complain about announcing when we record stuff, but, like, man, the energy this week is 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 bad. The vibe is already bad, not to be a downer. What do, what do you think, PMC? I, you know, it's, I think there's, there's a, a big reason for that and that's just uh you know talking about the weather as opening small talk is a bit tired you know that's kind of the famous example of small talk but uh the weather seems particularly exceptional all around the u.s uh this week that's a one way of putting it for sure (laughs) Uh, for for you know better and worse uh you know hopefully in a future yet to come uh the shizma drive will usher in a new era of prosperity we're not there yet (laughs) So? I know this is not a uh, a PMC call, but uh, but but uh, Stephen, do you remember there is a a single episode of Hey Arnold? Hey Arnold is split into two parts, uh, and the first half the story was Heat Wave, and then the second half story mm. was the Blizzard episode. Every time I'm in a movie theater, I think about that episode. Right? Yes the 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 Heat Wave episode in particular is just the life that we live in America now. So you know that's just the way it goes. I, uh, I gotta say. I'm, I'm fresh off a three and a half hour mow job. Mow job meaning I, that's not anything sexual. I mean, it's I mowed my lawn, and uh, I chose today because I was going to do it yesterday. But it's kind of a dry heat today. I usually, we don't usually experience that where we're at. So the dry heat lives up to the hype. As I uh, I made it through it, and I'm very fragile when it comes to uh, warm weather. Stephen, you just invoked for me. Man, I shouldn't admit to this on machinations, but here we go. You just invoked to me a, a gag from uh, from the film Beer Fest. Uh, uh, where, where somebody, a, a male prostitute, offers a Z job, and someone asks, "What's a Z job?" And he goes, "If you have to ask, you can't afford it." And he, he's like, "I got two bucks." And somebody goes, "No," and pushes the wall off screen. That that's, bad movie kills me. I love that terrible movie. <laughs> that's all right. Someone reminded me of the. Now that I'm, this will be a topic. Trust me, of many future opening bits once I get a little farther in deep space. But someone reminded me of the Family Guy joke from. One of the first three seasons between Odo and Quark, and I, I laughed at it. Yeah, it completely I, escaped my mind, though. Yeah, I mean, you know, it just there's sometimes it's jokes be like that sometimes. Yeah, uh, EMC. Speaking of jokes, uh, we, there's a game series that's got jokes, and they're, mm. they're usually pretty good. Sometimes somebody asks, like, has a video game series ever been funny? Like, laugh out loud funny? And I think if if pressed, if someone if the astronaut was pointing the gun at my head, I would I would say I think probably Phoenix Wright. Has made me laugh out loud before, I think. PMC, tell us about Phoenix Wright, Apollo Justice. I think that's it. Apollo Justice is the name of that yeah, one. Yeah, so I, I think the Apollo Justice is when they sort of realized the the like hole they got themselves in with naming things. Because it, isn't it supposed to be Ace Attorney, right? Is like supposed to be the series yes. name. Uh-huh. And, and then they're like, oh, this game doesn't star Phoenix Wright. Ooh, no, what oh, do we do? <laughs> Ooh. Uh, but anyway, so I just uh, recently finished up a playthrough uh, on stream of Apollo Justice, Ace Attorney, and uh, it was a really good time. It, it was interesting coming into this one because I had, I had a bunch of people telling me this was like their favorite. 
And a bunch of people feeling like this was a, a weaker entry, you know, coming off of the high of uh, of trials and tribulations, you know, which is, well, I think a lot of people regard that as just being a big, fun time. Uh, and, you know, makes many uh, strands come together in the Ace Attorney series. Uh, I really liked Apollo Justice. I a thing I always like as a as maybe a, a trope or, or series uh, thing to do is I love it when you give a new perspective character and then you get to see your old perspective character through that lens. Yes, uh, this is why like uh, I I keep bringing this game up. This is why Metal Gear Solid Two owns that you yes, get to correct. see Solid Snake through the lens of Raiden. Uh, I'm sure there's probably more examples that that people come up with. But in this case, you have a lot of fun, uh, you know, being in Apollo Justice's shoes, uh, seeing the other characters, and the cases are all very, very fun too. And partic- like particularly fun for me was the third case, Turnabout Serenade, which has a lot of music stuff going on, a lot of music jokes, a lot of music things, uh, and I, I really appreciated that. I just had a lot of fun with it myself, and you know, I got, I, I got, I got the jokes, you know, I got some of the references. And uh, it was just it was just a good time. Like I, I am really impressed with how consistent it is. I, I mean, I say that having played the first three games probably around like 2010, 2011, and enjoying them then. I'm I I, I wonder how they would age because I, I know some of those references can be topical. I recall, <laughs> but in yeah, yes, I you know we'll we'll see. I I don't know. I don't. Know. I mean, who knows if I'll if I'll revisit them. Uh, I'm usually not the you know the sort of person for for rewatching, replaying too too much outside of you know specific contexts. Speedrunning's not quite replaying, really. You know, that's uh, hilarious considering our next show. Mm, uh, that is hilarious. <laughs> well, it's it's one of the few. Yeah, I mentioned before, this came up before. It's one. Yeah, our next next show is one of the few I've rewatched. Um, so that's uh, I don't know, but sometimes you make exceptions, right? Now, not everything is a hard and fast rule. Uh, have you two played uh, Apollo Justice? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think it gets a bad rap. I, I don't know. I, I will probably go through my Phoenix Wright history as I'm planning to play the Great Ace Attorney mm-hmm. like when they come out late July, Same. You know, early August. Exciting. And yeah, I think I, when Ignis said he was playing through the trilogy with his partner, I'm going to try to convince my partner to play them through me. She very I much think she likes would puzzles. Like yeah. I think she would like them. I think if if you know she had the the uh uh, uh I don't want to man. I was going to say attention span, and that makes it sound like she doesn't. I just mean that like. <laughs> For people who don't play video games as a hobby, the idea of, like, paying attention to a screen for that long can feel weird. You know what I mean? So, like, hopefully she would latch on to the, like, narrative fun of it, you know? Yeah, whenever I get stuck in a puzzle in Resident Evil, I usually throw it her way, and usually she solves it very quickly. Wow, cool. I think Apollo Justice really benefits from the short, shorter playtime. I played through the original trilogy maybe five years ago. I really much, very much liked it, but I did get Phoenix Wright fatigue because 30 hours, 30 hours, 30 hours, it started to set in. And then I went into Apollo Justice and finished it, but I was happier for the more condensed playtime. The problem with the Phoenix Wright original trilogy is that you can feel the unexpected success of one on two. Mm-hmm. Like two direct, it feels like it was written in under a year because it was. And, and so a lot of two is like Fufura. And and so like you, you get this situation where the second case, the first main case of two, is the only important one <laughs> and basically the best one uh, in that particular game. Uh, and then all of one and all of three basically being bangers like all the way through, except plus or minus the restaurant case in three. Uh, mm-hmm. PMC, you're not wrong 
to worry about the the, the jokes landing less in three. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, you are exactly the perfect age to completely understand all the references being made. So this is a problem for non-skeletons. Yeah, like unlike us. But for you, you will 100% understand the YTMND references that are in the game. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> It feels like it lives in a similar place to some of the working designs translations where like, yes. I, I can probably totally love them and they're going to they're gonna land a little bit more poorly for, for folks who are younger. Right. No, Clinton era jokes are not going to do shit for fuck for people who are playing it in 2021. I will PSA because I don't know when the next time I'm going to be playing a working designs game. I will always go to bat for those translations yes. not every joke but i they really land hard for me yes no, in, in totally. a good way yeah i like apollo justice uh i have a i'm a big fan of the the uh prosecutor uh clavier gavin has a fucking sick uh theme song it's a capcom ass theme song mm-hmm. yeah, yeah and his and his squiddly squiddly d when he objects is pretty good um you know, uh, uh, is Clavier the the prosecutor, or did I mix no, him up with right. his No, you're right. You got it. You got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah What's yeah, his yeah, brother's yeah. name? Klaus? Klaus? Christoph. Klaus? I don't know. Christoph. Oh, Way Christoph. Off. That's yeah. it. That's right. Christoph. Uh, yeah. You know, um, uh, Hobo Phoenix is the hottest Phoenix has ever been. Uh, uh, easy. It's not even close. Um, uh, I I like the idea of Dad Phoenix as well i i appreciate that that carries through throughout the continuation of the phoenix Wright series i guess spoilers for dual destinies i don't know um, dual destinies gets a real that's the real game i think that gets trashed on that i really like i will I like I also destinies. go to bat five I, yeah same I, I think dual destinies is good i know that the one that follows it people are really hype on uh the the uh, i actually haven't played that one to mm. my great shame uh but I, I i would love to it seems great i know it involves time travel so that I'm like, uh oh, hell yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Capcom will do a, you know, the second trilogy compilation, and hopefully, a, I never played the Edgeworth games because of Phoenix Wright fatigue, and I hear the second one is particularly good. I liked the one. I don't know if both of them came to the states. Did both of them one come did. to the states? Yeah, I, I yeah, definitely just one. did that not one. officially. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I definitely did play that one. It was fine. See, the thing that I didn't like about the Edgeworth game is that, like. And I understand why they went this way, because probably for development reasons. But I, I didn't like how it pretended that, that Phoenix didn't exist. That there was this, like, other world that Phoenix Wright existed in that could never cross. Like Miles' I, happy place. Yeah, it's it just, I don't know. I, I just, uh, for me, the thing that's interesting about Miles Edgeworth is his relationship to Phoenix Wright. And, and it's a little bit like like creating a Venom movie where they couldn't include Spider-Man. But but that would never happen because that's insane. Um, but uh, <laughs> in any case, uh, PMC just did the blinking white guy meme in me a little bit. <laughs> I get the reference. I just can't add on to it because I've never seen Venom. No, that's fine. I've never seen Venom either. That's kind of my point. Like I don't look. I know people like it. I'm not shitting on you if you like it. I don't really care. I just find the idea very silly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, I my impression is that I would I would see it as like a Tom Hardy movie for Tom Hardy doing Tom Hardy things, and that's like how the like the lens I have to view it for, through because I can't view it as a Venom movie for you know, just the exact reasons you said. Right. It has to be right, and that's fine, and that's good, and I appreciate that, and I support it. All those things <laughs> are good. That's the ideal way to watch Nemesis. Right. 
Oh, yes, that too, sure. God, what a bad movie. Um, <laughs> but uh, speaking of bad movies, actually, that, that's not fair. I'm going to talk about My Marin, which I've been keeping secret for like, I don't know, like a month and a half. When did this come out? Like the beginning of June? Yeah, that might so. be right, actually. Yeah. Late May, maybe? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that it was, it was earlier than that. Uh, I have been playing the Mass Effect Legendary Edition uh, as a, just a background context. Uh, I played Mass Effect when it first came out way back in 2006 or seven, whatever the fuck that was. Uh, and that was the 360 generation. I felt like it was, in our circle, a pretty big deal. I feel like everyone in our little group of friends was playing it. Uh, uh, you know, I, my memory of that whole series is of course overshadowed by the way it ended, uh, uh, which is something I'm going to talk about briefly today because I've finished all three games and I've got some, some very quick thoughts on all of them. Steven, I know you haven't played them. Um, but so I'm going to talk some brief spoilers. I know you don't really care. Don't uh, worry. I'm, I'm spoiler not allergic. Am I, is spoiler allergic the word choice I want, or is it no, not allergic? No, I think you would want spoiler, like, I don't know, proof? Spoiler proof I'm, would be... I'm spoiler proof. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but yes, all right. So uh, the, my, 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 like, bird's eye view of them is that I feel like they remain good. Like, I, I don't think I have re-evaluated them to be like, no, actually, these were secretly... Uh, poison that garbaged our brains. I, I don't. I'm, I'm not necessarily that far on it, uh, or that like positive on it. But on, in the end, I do think as a interactive science fiction experience, it is pretty good. Especially if, especially if you generally don't do science fiction for whatever reason. I think that it is very onboardable for people who don't do science fiction or or like the. 90s era of television science fiction and want to play a, a, a playable version of that because Mass Effect is definitely that for better or for worse. Uh, Mass Effect 1, very, very clearly a classic Bioware CRPG brought into the 360 generation. It's just that 100%. Uh, people are going to say that the gameplay improvements of Legendary Edition have made the total package better than the like action movie esque Mass Effect 2, but I, I, I don't. I don't agree. It's it's still weird. Like PMC, I know you played it. It is it, you can you can attest to how it is like an in betweeny stage of like CRPG spell casting mixed with gunplay. Right. It, it, that's that's basically what's going on with that. So so Stephen, uh, there isn't like magic in this setting, but mm-hmm. they have a science fiction element called Element Zero which allows people to control dark energy and allows you to disrupt gravity and create explosions and all sorts of stuff like that. So you can assign these like spells to your teammates while you do stuff. And in the meantime, you're doing like fairly rudimentary cover shooting. Do you think that's fair, PMC? That basically describes it? Yeah. No, I, I think that's extremely fair. And it's also, it's funny to point out that in the, especially in the first game, that basically the, the, there's like there's like three places you can be in in those games: combat, tech, and biotics, which is the, the magic. Right. And in, in Mass Effect One, from what I my memories, I'm sure there's more details to it than this, but like I remember tech and biotic being almost indistinguishable. It's just like chuck magic and then go back to whatever gunplay you're doing. 
Well, it's, it's funny you mention that because I've been reading a lot of like reevaluation where people are like, man, Mass Effect 1's gameplay is so much more interesting than 2 and 3. Like they boiled stuff down way too much. And like, you're so correct, PMC, that it really, they, there's very little to distinguish biotics from tech. Like it really is just flavor mm-hmm. in a way that like Mass Effect 2 didn't boil down as much as it just acknowledged right you know what i mean like it just doesn't like put any uh uh you know this is that thing that we've always complained about with the whole like uh linear versus like non-linear thing that has basically disappeared from discourse nowadays Thank goodness. yeah i mean because linear one as we all knew right you know what I mean? like, it, was, it was all linear the whole time it's just instead yes. of the earth being round and the earth is just a line oh, that's a good one yeah it's 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 a good one uh, it's it definitely it just mm, anyway Mass Effect One, uh, PMC you you would be happy to hear that the Mako improvements do not necessarily change the tenor of those sections. Good. They are still very chaotic. Good. in a way that that was pleasing. Uh, uh, the thing is, and I think this is what people hang on to with Mass Effect One, and I think I kind of mentioned this already. If you're at all familiar with science fiction writ large, the stuff in Mass Effect 1 doesn't necessarily come off as novel or interesting as you might remember if you played it back in, like, 2000. And especially if you were the right age, which I was. We were in high school or maybe, like, just finishing high school when it came yeah, out. I, I think you guys were probably... been just in university. Because I, I remember, right. I think it was, like, my, my sophomore year, and I was... Uh, my girlfriend at the time was like, you have you have to go get this shit because you have a 360. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to do it. And it was, and it was good. It was good. Yeah, so uh, to to say, you know, some of it is not as novel as interesting as you remember. It still works, but it's it's just not very sophisticated. There's a lot of assumptions that play that are, like, icky if you poke at them too hard. But I wouldn't say any of them are, like, and obviously, like, the whole, you know, Steven, to give you an idea of the plot, like, you are basically uh, the uh, a space cop, uh, and you've been assigned to catch a bad space cop. And it turns mm-hmm. out that space cop is working for... Uh, evil robots who are like to give you an idea the robots are like cthulhu's they're like robot cthulhu's just think imagine that basically and that so St- star trek picard yeah uh, you're you're opening so yes because a lot of people <laughs> did complain that star trek picard was alarmingly similar to mass Effect. <laughs> because... sorry I, re- I heard that comparison so much i wanted to seem educated so i made that joke yes knowing no full well i really don't get it that's fair no it's not wrong is the problem PM- or steven that is the issue um and so you stop that and it turns out the the issue of the the reapers the space cthulhu's is is looming large still mass effect 2 uh is kind of a a uh famously bioware had uh uh made the choice to create a more streamlined action focused experience with mass effect 2 and it was so successful that they tried to do the same thing in dragon age uh, and nobody liked it with dragon age even though dragon age 2 is maybe the best dragon age game um but anyway Mass Effect 2, people in hindsight are trying to present the streamlined package of 2 as somehow lesser in light of the changes of the gameplay in the Legendary Edition. But I think Mass Effect 2 is still sleek and elegant and and really a, a little bit, a touch more sophisticated. Like, it definitely understands that that bad assumptions can lead good people into behaviors and decisions that are reprehensible. And they, they're not even aware of it. And the, the storyline serves that in a way that, like, I don't feel like the writing of Mass Effect 1 was was capable of at all. 
Mass Effect 1 is very much like... If I was going to compare it to anything... We've, we've talked about this before. I hate to, to compare it to this kind of thing, but most people understand. Guardians of the Galaxy 1 is a very paint-by-numbers movie. Like, the characters are very broad, and they're all doing their main thing, and that's just to introduce the audience to outrageous concepts in a very efficient way. D- do you think that's fair to say about the first one? Yeah. Yeah. And the second one, Guardians of the Galaxy, is way more character-focused and way more interested in specific journeys for the characters, for better or for worse, right? Like, I feel like the Star-Lord stuff is all boring, but basically everybody else is really well served in that second movie. And I and I feel like the same is true of Mass Effect 2. It feels a lot more interested in its characters. It gives them interests outside of the immediate happenings of the plot. And the the space for them to be bad is a little bit more sophisticated than... I keep saying that, and I apologize. It's a little bit more elegant than, you know kill the puppy versus pet the puppy, which is a lot of where the Bioware morality can break down. Uh, the plot of two is, is weirder. I actually am still having finished it. I'm not sure how it kind of fits into the whole grand picture because essentially uh, Shepard ends up working with a human supremacist group in order to stop a minion of the Reapers from harvesting human colonies and turning them into a robot baby. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You... You you fight the and kill the robot baby, um, but at the end of the game, you learn that the the space Cthulhu's are are imminently invading, uh, uh, which leads directly into Mass Effect Three, uh, which is the uh, you know. Uh, before I move on, though, the writing got more sophisticated. It's a lot easier to see past the rough edges of the CRPG roots. You know, like people are going to complain about that, but I I think it just serves the experience overall. Like it's not it is maybe a less interesting cover shooter than other color shooters but i i really don't have a lot of experience in that realm and so like i i thought this was fine i i enjoy you know put cards on the table i play a vanguard and so vanguards are mid-range biotic users so it's a completely different style of gameplay than other sorts of cover shooters in my experience like i don't know i guess gears of war does have you run into mid-range more often and and to do stuff but like i i never really played those games and, and vanguard's very kinetic and fun you have a little charge move that gives you extra shields and then you can shotgun people real good because i'm bad at aiming and with a shotgun you just have a big old area and you just put people in front of it and it works generally you know uh it's it you know it's still got the same bad assumptions and even the stuff that's that's quote like unquote complex is is a little bit flimsy but you know i i, I don't think it's 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 perfect or mindful but it's better and then mass effect 3 is the real tough one for all ignis uh you know uh i I was there when it happened uh i remember (laughs) uh emotionally what it was like to get here and uh i I gotta say even with all the improvements and editing and additions uh, the ending's still not good y'all it's still it's it's still kind of fundamentally flimsy so so, Steven, at the end of the trilogy, the Reapers have finally invaded. Uh, it is a straight-up apocalypse situation. Mm-hmm. So the goal of the game as Shepard is to unite all the, the, the peoples of Middle-Earth. No, I'm sorry. All of the people in, in the Mass Effect galaxy in order to try and combat the Reapers with a basically last-ditch impossible weapon. Um, the finale of the game reveals that 
Okay, spoilers for the Mass Effect trilogy, uh, a series that is uh, almost nine years old, I think, at this point. Uh, but Legendary Edition did just come out, so if you do not want to know what the overall plot is, skip ahead, I want to say, like, five minutes. Um, so it's revealed that the Reapers are actually the product of a god AI who is per per perpetually performing an experiment which is essentially a cultivated society which is meant to prevent the organic races of that galaxy from creating synthetic races which will always result in conflict because the synthetic races are inherently superior and the organic races will always be jealous of that and so conflict will always ensue. So you're presented with one of three solutions. You can either destroy all synthetic life, you can control all synthetic life, or you can synthesize organic and synthetic life. Now, the reason people don't like this ending, including me, is because it's very obvious in the moment, and it still is, even with the stuff they've done to add more to the ending, that this reveal was changed from something else in in the last moments of release like the steven you'll have to take my word for it here but pmc maybe you could back me up for a little bit like the this it feels like a weird surprise about what the underlying tenor of the conflict of mass effect is and it still does it still feels like this this can't be what it all was really about it, it still doesn't feel like cuz there are many stories within Mass Effect about this conflict, about the idea of synthetic and organic relations that feels like the game isn't emphasizing enough if this is the secret, you know, overall plot thing. And 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 having finished it, having done all of the, did all the Citadel DLC, super duper fun, really enjoyed. In general, Mass Effect 3, like, like it's actually probably the best presented story of the three. Still, like it is really, really effective, uh, and the and the ending is very clearly last second swap. It feels hollow once you get there. It just it still does. It still doesn't really. And uh, granted, like the endings are really cool science fiction concepts. They're really actually kind of bold. Um, the one uh, uh, destroy all synthetics ending is pretty boring, but control has your player character Shepard. Be basically becoming one of the reapers that they've been fighting the whole game and the idea of your main character becoming like losing their sense of self but becoming the force that they've been fighting against in order to stop it from hurting people is is a cool idea you know uh, and then the synthesis one is basically rewriting what the whole universe even is and turning all life into a weird biological synthetic cyborg combination just naturally and mm -hmm. like it's such a shame that they haven't had a chance to make games in either of those possible settings right like it would be cool if in mass effect andromeda there was a dlc where you ran into a fucking shepherd re reaper you know that was just voiced by mark Mir or jennifer hale you know um or or the opposite or we played another game where the continuation of the 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 fusion of uh bio, bio, biological and synthetic life you know was able to flourish i don't know it i i tell you what i enjoyed the experience it was it still works you know like it's clumsy and the idea of the interconnected games you can really feel 
how it could never have worked in the way that people wanted it to work. But by Mass Effect 3, when stuff carries all the way through, you do have a legitimate ex- emotional ex- like relationship to it. And there are moments that still work. Like, there are character performances that, like, I'm, I'm def- definitely more cynical about. But, like, uh, the Rex Grunt uh, uh, Citadel DLC Shepard scene is m- maybe an all-time comedy moment forever. Uh, it is perfect every single time. Uh, Garrus Vicarian still owns. Tally still owns, you know... It's 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 good. It's got mechs in it too. In Mass Effect Three, you fight a bunch of mechs. Uh, the the Atlas uh, Cerberus mech. Uh, you can uh-huh. shoot the the people out of the cockpit and take the mech over. As a Vanguard, that's not. I don't. I don't ever give a shit. I'm 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 my own mech. Uh, uh, you know. But <laughs> uh, uh, in, in case people are curious, Mass Effect One smooched Liara. Mass Effect Two smooched Garrus. Mass Effect Three. Went back to Liara. That, that was that was the, the tenor of that. Garrus... It, 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 so here's the thing about romancing Garrus, in my opinion. Garrus is, is a swell guy. I love Garrus. He's very sweet. Um, he's he's also, like, so enthusiastic. And that, that energy is a bit much for me. That's <laughs> uh, uh, fine. I love him. He's a lovely man. Bird. Man. And and he's very gentle, loving, and he's a sweet, sweet friend. I really enjoy his friendship, especially. Uh, I feel like Liara really is lost at sea, if not dating Shepard. Like, her trajectory really gets dark very fast. <laughs> and with Garrus, he ends up dating Tally, if you don't get date Garrus. And I, that's cool. One of the things you learn about Tally is that she's a big fan of this famous uh, uh, movie called a uh, float and flotilla which is like a uh romeo and juliet-esque uh star-crossed romance between a a corian whose whose race they are uh so um they're so separated from their native environments that they have to be in these these suits in order to survive and they have harsh allergic reactions whenever they remove their suits uh and a turian and so there's, the, you know, if you let that play out, you, there's that cool second layer to what's going on here that, that Tally, this is like a, a, a thing that Tally has imagined and has, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, had romantic feelings about. It's cool. Stuff like that. That's why I like that stuff in video games. You know, uh, Mass Effect does a good job of it. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to be done with it. I'm moving on now to Trails of Cold Steel 3. I'll be starting that imminently. Um, I might even stream it on on Twitch instead of doing my my tweet thread because it was a little bit a uh, little bit annoying to to freeze the game and take a screenshot and go back to the game. I might just stream it with commentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, my only concern about streaming it is that PMC you stream every night. I would feel bad about streaming oh. a game. I mean, when, when you stream every night, live your life, like, you know. Like, no, I understand. No, I know. I'm not saying I'd be competition. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying I would be. I would feel bummed out. <laughs> like, but you know, it is what it is. That's something I'm thinking about. Um, also, you know what, Mechanations listeners, if you're if you're listening and you're and you're interested, if if you want, if you're playing Guilty Gear Strive, uh, tell me because I'm thinking about getting Guilty Gear Strive, and I'd mm. play Guilty Gear Strive if Mechanations listeners want to play. Hell yeah. Just let me know, cause I'm 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 teetering on the I'm I'm having a hard time paying full price for a game right now. 
but it, 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 with enticement, I would think about it. I'm not exactly a pro fighting game player, but I like to play, and I don't mind getting beat up a lot, and that's the best thing you can have when playing fighting games. But speaking of... Nope. Nothing. There's no segue here. Well, there's Alberto. Alberto would approve. Yeah, I mean, speak. I could have done with Slayer and Alberto the Shockwave. I didn't. I wasn't. I wasn't feeling it. I didn't think that was the right move. But yes. (laughs) Giant Robo. It is time now to begin our wrap up. Our our post mortem. I don't know why I started calling them that, but I did. Uh, uh, on the the giant robo OVA, the day the Earth stood still. Uh, boy, man, we had a lot of fun covering this one, and and it really it ignited a lot of excitement from listeners, and that excitement produced emails. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm lost in sea. It's fine though. Thank you, thank you to everyone who chimed in. We really appreciate hearing from you. Uh, Shout-outs immediately to Dymo Z or Dymo Z, who emailed us a lot of cool material, including a script of a possible finale episode, a number of sketches done for a potential prequel series that never ended up happening. All of that was really cool to read through. Steven, uh, I know you and I mentioned, or were talking about uh, reading through that finale script. Did you have any thoughts about that, uh, that last script? Yeah, it would totally make a great... So... The story behind the script is it's a a 23-year-old fan fiction. Um, The writer apparently was in direct communication with Imagawa. They were pen pals of sorts. And the writer um, had ideas of their own for how Giant Robo would end and apparently bounced some of those ideas off Imagawa over email. I wish Imagawa was my pen pal. I have a lot to talk to him about. And, um, yeah, so it's a very, like, compressed and relatively concise piece of fan fiction but it it details this very epic final battle uh the tower of babel is underneath the big fire it starts it starts at right at the end of episode seven so episode quote unquote episode eight um begins right after daisaku and the rest of the experts we got some new ones sprinkled in there are traveling to the big fire headquarters underneath of which was the tower of babel the whole time and the tower of babel is a weapon of immense power so of course they want to dismantle it and make sure that big fire can't use it and yeah this is a lot of epic clashes the neptune battles giant robo which sounds dope all three of big fire's guardians battle giant robo which sounds like a lot of fun uh kenji's not dead koen is not dead i mean i'll take this with the grain of salt of course it's not quote-unquote canon but I, I, kenji I, of course we know wasn't gonna bite the dust there uh yeah that that covers like most of the big bits i mean you know a lot of it's they did use one very funny expression which i want to adopt now the writer um i'll I'll quote the line here now there is no way to describe just how ultimate and and i quote cut ass rugged this mini war between the (laughs) celestial nine and magnificent ten is i really like that expression yeah i want to adopt that expression fuck yeah I mean, here's the thing I would say about it. I've read some from some fan fiction in my day to propose or fix finales, and the thing that struck me about this one in particular is, you know, I, first off, I do want to say that the uh, pen pals with the the creator is a classic sort of like uh, my girlfriend lives in Canada sort of situation. Now, I'm not saying 
that that's the case with this at all. And and I would not doubt that about this because reading through it, it kind of lacks, and maybe this is because Giant Robo is already like this, it kind of lacks the indulgent parts of fan fiction that you can normally identify in these sort of fan finale type fixes. Like there's normally, it's it's normally a lot more corny. Do you know what I mean? Like, and yeah. this is speaking as someone who likes corny. Uh, but yeah, it's, it was a really interesting read. I was glad to see, look through it. Um, also, uh, Dimos uh, talked about some of the some of just the 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 reasons why these projects never came into being. How the IP for Giant Robo just became outrageously expensive once Yokoyama died, and so some of these things just never got off the ground. Uh, also recommended the Toku. I. I I would fucking love to check that out sometime. I, I really, I, I love old tokusatsu a lot. I find it so charming. Um, that's, I don't know if that's something that will make it onto coverage for Mechanations. I'd be, I'd be interested in that future where we'd be able to do that. Maybe that would be like a good Patreon type goal if we ever had something like that set up. That's, it would be that's, perfect for like some sort of like mystery science theater, uh, like, commentary during it that's what i mean i would fucking love to release commentary to live tokusatsu <laughs> like, uh i love mst mst3k um anyway all right dimos super shout outs a, a lot of the the our coverage was not really possible without some of the things that they showed to us really really uh, cannot emphasize enough how much we appreciate their contributions all right, I'm going to transition into our first question. This one coming from listener LOL Clumpy, or just Clumpy, depending on what we prefer. Shoutouts to LOL Clumpy. Hey guys, been watching along and enjoying the pod. First of all, I would say that Giant Robo was awesome, and Tetsugu, Koenchaku, and Issei are among my faves. Do you think the story and the emotional beats, sacrifice slash tension, would have landed better if they expanded upon Daisaku as a character and less as a thematic element? As a result of him having little to no characterization, I feel like he fell flat. Genya tier, speaking to Steven. Um, uh, especially when there are so many spicy and delicious characters in the show. Overall, really glad I checked this out, and big sad that I will never see season two. Thanks for answering. Thanks for chiming in, Clumpy. Uh, I mean, listen, uh, I'm gonna, I kind of want both of you guys to go mm-hmm. first, uh, mostly because... Uh, uh, I feel like the uh, this particular listener might know how I feel about this, but but I'm curious. I do want to know how you guys feel about this. Sure, I guess I'll I'll go ahead and take a swing at it. I I think I might I, I might have to disagree with uh with the question though because I I feel like you know part of our rubric of course is that we think about our favorite and least favorite characters. We'll get to that later. Um, Daisaku, I definitely found very compelling as as an earnest young child i don't i don't feel i feel like he's one of the more realized people i mean through the themes you know through but but we know he's committed to you know certain things he tells us how he feels uh often and i feel like you know his his telling us his feelings isn't just for thematic purposes i have an idea of him as an earnest and dedicated young man who wants to live up to his father uh, you know, who wants to do all these things that are tied into the themes? But again, you know, I, I, I feel like I know Daisaku, and other, other, other characters. I think we can certainly argue might have been sacrificed for reasons, but I don't think Daisaku is one of them. I, I'm, I would, I probably push back against that. What about you, Stephen? Yeah, I think I talked about this on the pod, but I thought Daisaku's personality, background, trauma, 
uh, emotional like landscape was deceptively simple in that on paper, if you were just to read a transcript or a summary of Giant Robo, it would seem like Daisaku really doesn't have much to him. But on screen, it really comes across as more universal. I mean, we all deal with issues and obstacles we have to overcome. And on paper, they, they can take on the appearance of being very simple, but that doesn't make it less meaningful. I've heard, not that I'm drawing a one-to-one comparison here, but of course I've heard similar criticisms of Evangelion with the character of Shinji, that Shinji's trauma takes away from the, either the robot fights or just the more interesting characters surrounding him. And why I don't necessarily think that Shinji is the most interesting character, just because I grew up and now empathize or sympathize and like see myself in some of the older characters. Uh, again, I think that falls under deceptively simple. Um, I think I cited before when we talked about Daisaku as a character, I was listening to a podcast talking about Ghost in the Shell, and Ghost in the Shell is very heavy-handed with how it deals with some of its philosophical issues. But like the question of like what is the meaning of life? Yes, it's simple. But the alternative is like an academic treatise on any philosophical subject. And it doesn't really work in the context of an interesting an hour and a half film or most more traditional films. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, without parroting too much of what you guys have said, first of all, I, I agree with both of you. I think both of you put it uh, really, really well. I, I think to I think to play devil's advocate on behalf of the listener here. Mm-hmm. I, I I will be the first one to to say that the characterization in general in Giant Robo is more simplistic. It is it is less of a focus in Giant Robo to flesh out these characters as people just writ large. This is just true about all of them. Um, I I think though where the listener is is running into friction has a lot to do with the the way that. Daisaku's journey feels rote, right? Like it, it feels like something that we've seen a million times before. And so you're if you're someone who who isn't on board with the exercise, it can feel like you're 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 looking at your watch waiting for the the child to save the day, right? Um and I, and I think that as we continue to talk about it, I don't want to get too much more into this just because I'm, I have more to say about this subject when we do our rubric later. Um, but I think that Daisaku functions for functions is the wrong word for it because I, I don't think storytelling is an equation necessarily, but I think that for the type of story this is, I would argue that additional characterization doesn't necessarily equal like better in this case. Now, does that mean it would have hurt? No, I, I I feel like the 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 way that Daisaku's in this story serves a very particular purpose. And if you're not in that into that exercise, then it's not going to do anything for you. Like Daisaku's never going to win you over because he's he's less of a character in that way. There's more of a thing going on than that, or less depending on your point of view, I guess. But We'll get into this more later, I feel like. I think, I think I'm think i on your side, both of your sides, when it comes to the issue, Daisaku. Uh, but I, I understand, I think, where this listener is coming from. I, I feel like this has a lot to do with some of the, the frictions people could have just in general with Giant Robo. I, I disagree, but I, I feel like I, I get it. I feel like I see what where they're coming from. Hopefully they keep listening. Shoutouts to LL Clumpy. Uh, you know, be careful when you're playing Dota, all right? Don't... don't <laughs> Don't get banned, okay? <laughs> uh, 
All right. So next up, uh, we heard from Trenton Rex. Shout outs to Trenton. We really appreciate the the uh, the uh, support, the emails. Uh, and uh, Trenton says, been running through the podcast backlog, but glad to have watched Giant Robo along with the pod. Do you think Vogler not explaining his intentions is narratively justified by Genya's father? Why didn't you just tell me? At minimum, is this acknowledgement satisfactory enough to look more favorably at some of the problems the whole Truth of Shizuma reveal brings up? You know, he recorded this video and set up to trigger after completing the mission, so he knew exactly what he was doing. It makes me question whether or not his dying Stop Shizuma was intentionally vague. I'd almost say it cast him back into a villain role. What type of action did he expect Genya to take, considering Shizuma and the other scientists' betrayal and having no context about the real risk? Ginray, actually don't believe in your father. He was an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I get the whole plot hinges on Vogler's withholding of context. I just kind of wish the show creators revealed the truth of Shizuma in a way that didn't feel hand-wavy. Thanks for the pod, Trenton. Now I want to, um, kind of related to this is another question we got from another listener, Blue Spaceman, longtime listener who has also contributed before, uh, on a strangely lighter and maybe more cynical note this time around i found the dramatic irony of genya's whole crusade being based on a horrible misunderstanding of his father's work and last wishes almost tragicomical yes it's absolutely tragic and sad that this foolish man ended up killing his own sister although to be fair the narrative had already set up that genray was going to die or at least disappear anyway so it didn't hit me quite as hard as with such a transparent level of foreshadowing already in place and going through all sorts of cruel manipulations without the need to do so if only he'd spent more time trying to research the truth and unravel the meaning of his father's words, all this death and destruction wouldn't have happened. But there's still a somewhat comedic angle at work, too, in that the often-repeated flashbacks with Dr. Vogler ultimately turn out to be severely incomplete and lacking necessary context. A seemingly evil mad scientist was, in the end, purely a misunderstood and well-meaning scientist. Instead, and everyone got it all backwards. Well, that's a shame. <laughs> you all lost. Better luck next time. Oh, wait. It's too late for that now. As an aside, I've always wondered why it did take two and a half years to produce that final episode. It certainly looks very nice, but I can only hope that the animation staff wasn't too burned out badly by then. Uh, That might be asking too much, considering the state of the industry, both now and back then. Best regards, the Blue Spaceman. Thanks again, Blue Spaceman and Trenton. Um, I, I, you know, for me, I I feel like this is the... hmm, I, I talk a lot about the exercise of storytelling, right? Where... You, you, there's a portion of the act of, of being, you know, being, of, of engaging with fiction. I'm trying to stop using engaging so much, but it's so useful for how we deploy it. Of, of being, you know, in a story that is about, you know, we talk about suspending our disbelief, but it's about buying in a little bit, right? And so for me, I feel like the, the idea of, the the misunderstanding is such a like fundamental aspect of storytelling that it's it, I I'm kind of ready to accept that Genya's whole plan is is hinged on a comical misunderstanding to this degree. I do think that the execution of it leaves open a lot of opportunity for poking at it, and and so this can be you know. Your mileage may vary. I, to me, this comes off as, as very understandable for the pr- purpose of storytelling. But I could definitely see if I was in a room with a bunch of people and, and we were having drinks and pizza, 
I could definitely see a, a, a portion of that audience being like, hey, wait a minute. And I don't think they're necessarily wrong. I don't know. What, what do you guys think? So originally when I was watching the episode and I was about 40% through, I bumped on it pretty hard until the end. I think I wrote in my notes, like, this seems like a cruel joke from Futurama. But then I got to the end and thought about this idea of things being passed down over generations and the miscommunication that can result. And I think it has, like, a certain thematic heft to it. It's contrived, yes. And I would be harder on this if the show in question wasn't so quixotic, wasn't so fantastical, wasn't so romantic with a capital R. It's not based in realism, so I can kind of let this fly by me without criticizing it too much because the world is so larger than life. I think the execution leaves some, a little something to be desired, but I think it has something thematic going for it. If that thematic thing wasn't there, I would be a lot more critical of it. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely echo that. I think uh, contrivance was also a, a, a word in my notes, which is to say that it is totally reasonable to feel that this is contrived. I think when it comes to tragedy, especially tragedies based around miscommunication, making the miscommunication feel believable or, or reasonable can be very difficult. And here, you know, as has already been mentioned, this is such a high tragedy, uh, you know, romantic, operatic, etc., that I almost feel like it has to be an unbelievable tragedy, you know, to some mm. extent that, you know, that, that and this is why I'm able to buy into it. I think this is what, what Ignis was saying in terms of the ability to engage, buy into it, you know, participate, is that you, you have to accept the miscommunication as a necessary fact of the world in order to get to that lovely content, like the difficulty of generational transfer of knowledge. What does it mean to live up to my father's legacy? What was my father's legacy? You know, uh, so forth and so on. Uh, so it's it's reasonable, definitely, to poke at it. Uh, you know, I don't know why he couldn't have put the voicemail somewhere else, but I would say if you can get if you can just accept it and then think about those other topics, I you know I hope you'll be, you'll feel pretty well fed at least by by that part of it. Right. No, I agree. I, I think for me. The, the the main thing, the main reason why it's easy to accept this particular plot beat of the, the Shizuma Drive activating the voicemail that clears everything up is because it emphasizes how Genya's problem was always ego. That, that this was never about revenge for his father's sake. This was about his feelings about what the world owes him specifically, right? Like, he he thinks that it's about his family or or whatever, but, like, shooting... Ginray in the head in order to get the the last canister is proof at least from the narrative that it's it's not about family for him he is he is not a dominic toretto he does not know the meaning of coronas and family <laughs> although it's kind of fun too that you know amidst the plurality of miscommunications with both genya and Ginray, they sort of end up delivering they're on their father's request, you know, unintentionally, oh, yeah. which is, you know, just again, heaps on it. How the capital R romantic nature of it. Right. I mean, this is the other part of this, I think. And, and why I, I, I like your read that it almost has to be unbelievable a lot is because it, it, it is also emphasizing the, the thematic element of the way that it is difficult to understand the intentions of our forebearers, right? That, mm -hmm. that if, if our, if the legacy is handed down without context, you know, 
there is it's a double edged sword, right? It, you can either be a Daisaku or a Genya, and and like the the point of Genya, and I think the reason why it is this way is to show how unfair it is and how easy it it can be for these things to get swayed one way or the other, right? That's that's kind of the whole point behind the the reveal of the GRK Kaku, right? Is that uh, the the savior of the world is very likely a ticking time bomb is is the reveal at the end of Giant Robo, you know? Um so yeah, I to to TLDR it for both of these points, I I kind of agree with the the Blue Spaceman in other words that it is kind of a tragic comedy, but that that sort of like so sad and and outrageous that it's almost kind of funny is I think exactly on point for what's for what it's trying to go for and and or if it's not trying to go for it I think it just executes that perfectly anyway you know yeah on that same subject uh, I'm gonna I wrote a note to my four month old and I put it under her crib so she could look at it twenty years from now it just says stop Shizma with no other context. <laughs> Well, Stephen, I think that perfectly encapsulates the issue here, right? Which is that you know, I, I, I'm not. It's hard to blame an old man for not choosing his dying words a little bit better. You know I mean? See, I thought I thought you were going to write like "Stop Ignis" or something. You know, I was. Yes. Try- <laughs> yeah, I mean that's fair. Uh, uh, good fucking luck. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. Uh, to continue, the Blue Space Man sent in some more of the email. I'm going to to finish that up real quick. Uh, can happiness be achieved without sacrifice is the central question of the show. And the story apparently answers with a resounding no. I don't know. I would, you know, I don't necessarily agree there, but that's fine. To such an extent, while watching the last couple of OVA episodes, I can't help but wonder aloud if it's even truly possible for the surviving characters to actually be happy, especially Daisaku, after experiencing so much trauma and personal tragedy in the last stages of the series. That's actually fair. That's a good point. Of course, this theme ties into the so-called common sense view among different societies and communities that can be no gain without any pain, so to speak. And on paper, that angle makes perfect sense within a storytelling context, too. After all, any fictional narrative where the characters do not experience any hardship or pain, while far from lacking validity or merit in its own right as entertainment, wouldn't necessarily serve as an educational model or example of resilience and self-improvement. Nor would it provide us with an opportunity for reflection about how to deal with many different kinds of obstacles we need to face and overcome during our personal or professional lives. I think it's a decent point. On, but a little devil on my shoulder, a little devil, uh, I can be your angle or your devil on my shoulder, tells me we should have room for doubt and not just accept these statements as factual. As much as I could greatly enjoy experiencing the drama of the last stages of Giant Robo as a viewer, even with certain tragic parts making me feel more than a little heartbroken, I still have a degree of skepticism. Daisaku is a very young boy, despite his intelligence and relatively privileged position, and post-traumatic stress can be an rel- extremely real thing, too. Seeing multiple people die right before your eyes, in a really awful way, <laughs> a lot of the time, is, well, not always easy to absorb and understand. The consequences of living through such an experience are not automatically positive and constructive. Even as an older man, frankly, but especially not at a young age. Perhaps one shouldn't spend too much time applying that sort of realistic phenomena to a fictional story, since it's fairly clear that Imagama wasn't in that particular mode to present the consequences in such a manner. But it's the sort of question that came to light after reapproaching this wonderful OVA at this point in my life. Blue Space Man, I think that's a lot of interesting thoughts. I, I think that, you know, I think it's correct to to uh, uh, focus on the the operatic tone of the rest of the piece when thinking about 
how they could deploy this sort of thing in the future. But I, I think that it is not incredibly out of the question for the sort of stuff that you're speaking to to inform an older Daisaku's like despair arc. You know, we talked about how in Giant Robo, after the, uh, 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 gosh, where did it, was it Hong Kong? That the, the Shanghai incident? fight? I think it was Shanghai, Shanghai right? Because yeah, the Shanghai, Shanghai oil fields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Shang, where Shang, after that, there was a little mini Daisaku uh, uh, despair arc. And there's kind of another one in, in episode seven. Um, and, and it's easy to see how those elements could be used that way. Uh, it's, you know, I think that speaks to a lot of the stuff that is in the show. Did you guys have any thoughts about the Blue Space Man's uh, email here? Yeah, you know, I actually, I really, really enjoyed, uh, I mean, I enjoyed the whole email, especially enjoyed this part. I This prompted me to put together a, uh, a parallel that I hadn't quite, hadn't quite got to me before, but I re- once I thought of it, I really enjoyed it. Getting back to the point about can happiness be achieved without sacrifice? And, uh, you know, I was thinking about this and, and how the, the show wrestled with this question. And the thing, my takeaway was that you know there wasn't necessarily a clear-cut answer so much as the goal is to be able to say no we're not able to say no yet or um i mean yes yes we're not able to say yes yet sorry my i flipped it we want to say yes that is the goal um the then the two characters who i think best embody that uh, one of course is Daisaku. The other, I would say, is Franken von Vogler, who you know has that extended flashback sequence where he talks about wanting to get to that future, uh, and then also the other flashback sequence where he refuses to gamble with the two percent when all the other scientists are just ready to to make that sacrifice. And so I think both v- uh, Vogler and Daisaku exist as these characters that push back against the ready acceptance of sacrifice. I think that's kind of the the thing that really separates them is that when when push comes to shove, when you know, when when Vogler encounters that the uh, that they've gone ahead of the experiment, he's like, "All right, we're here now. I'm going to make the best of it." And and similarly Daisaku, you know, seeing that the opportunity to uh to you know, I guess to to avoid accidentally harming Ginrai has passed resolves to go with giant robo and fight the vogler sphere right uh, i just found these you know and i found that parallel very uh in, in some ways you know the, there was a, a i guess a passing of the legacy there in terms of grappling with this question being you know i'm gonna try to do my best to say that yes happiness can be achieved but i'm also you know i, I recognize it's a it's a work in progress and that right. there is a road, uh, you know, to, to get there, and so I guess that ties into some of Blue Space Man's uh, saying, you know, in regards to self-resilience and improvement. But I think it does it by saying that the goal is to say yes, not so much as to readily commit to we have to have sacrifice, because right. I think that isn't isn't what Daisaku or Vogler wants. Yeah, those are all really good points. I will say this addresses. So I kept this quiver in. I kept this error in my quiver for the wrap up, just because you could. I could ask any of you to list what I have in my wrap-up, and you could probably uh, get them all dead to rights. But uh, a criticism I held back about the ending kind of addresses this. I agree with all your points. There is, I, not in terms of the characters, but in terms of some of its environmental messaging, I kind of wish it exercised a little more scrutiny. But we'll talk about that in our wrap-up. All right. Yeah, I think that for me, I, I want to emphasize that uh, I, well, you know, I, I don't disagree that the the answer resounding no, I think that is an absolutely fair uh, uh, read to uh, arrive at at the end of Giant Robo. 
I I just do think that there is that ambiguity is something that is on you know on purpose in Giant Robo, and that's just what I think. Um, speaking of what I think, I think I see over the horizon there that there appears to be a white castle coming straight at us. I, I think we should launch a torpedo at it and then survey the 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 remains to make sure everything is uh, taken care of. Uh, what do you say? Aye, aye, Captain. Aye. Listen carefully, Hanzui. This was the first step in achieving Big Fire's greatest desire. And now the stage is set for the great GR operation. GR operation? Possibly. I'm afraid so. The countdown has begun and the time of Big Fire's reign is near. Brother, look. Can you see the lights? Yes. The earth is finally moving again. I'm happy. I'm truly happy. We're back, and uh, it is now time for us, the hosts of Mechanations, to begin our wrap-up. Finally, the grand finale, if you will, for giant robo coverage here on Mechanations. We've got a bit of a structure we go here, a bit of a rubric we apply to all of our series, and at the end we give it a grade out of 10, even though I hate numerical scores, but this is the system we're in, and as we all know, it is impossible to change systems once they're in place. Uh, So here we go. All right, so typically we start by talking about our favorite characters. Who wants to... You know what? Actually, never mind. I'm not giving you guys the option, because I'm going to go... Because we, I, I kind of teed up already that I was going to talk about this before. And so this is a good time as any to get us started with the favorite character of Giant Robo, the OVA. Daisaku Kusama was my choice for favorite character. I feel strongly that the core interest of the Giant Robo OVA is arguing the value of what Daisaku represents. Not childhood itself, but the values of a child. Which is to say, loyalty, faith beyond reason, righteousness in the face of unwinnable odds. Without Daisaku, nobody's really fighting for anything in Giant Robo. They're just fighting each other. There's no real reason behind it all. The thing they're all fighting for is the stuff that Daisaku represents. And it's less about him as an individual, as a person, and more about what it means for him as a character, which is to say the, the, the things that all of the experts of justice had to sacrifice in order to become experts, they see within Daisaku, which is to say that righteousness, that zeal for life, all of that is stuff that they see is worth protecting. That's what they're protecting with Daisaku, less the individual that they care about and more a series of values that he represents as a character. And and as such, I, I found Daisaku as an element really compelling. I think he's one of the, the best pulled off variations of this kind of idea, despite being less of a character. And and maybe maybe being less of a character is what allows this to function as in in this case. That's the kind of struggle I've been having when talking about Giant Robo, is that it sounds shallow. But but when you combine the whole thing together, it isn't shallow, and at the core of it is Daisaku, in a way that if you ignored or got rid of, I, I think the whole thing would fall apart. I, I don't think it I don't think it's at all valuable without him at the center. It it's like if you I, I I've said this before, 
I think if you if you remove Daisaku, it's it's like removing Jaws from Jaws. You know, it it just you're missing the point. I think a little bit. What about let's say PMC? PMC, who is your favorite character of Giant Robo? Uh, well, so I. I kind of wanted to go with with Daisaku too for a lot of the reasons you said. He's just essential. He is one of the best, uh, I think, executed variations of this type of character. Uh, I, you know, I I feel like I have a true sense, maybe as maybe not of the character, but like I have like a truer sense of this archetype now. If, if that almost makes sense, that like I will right. be I will be equipped with like ah yes Daisaku, like that's the version of this. You know, like that's right. that's like a true. A true fiery version of this. Uh, I thought this might happen, so I wanted to have a backup shout out for uh, a character. So, what's interesting about Giant Robo for me is that like it is incredible and I love it, but it's not like really like quite my style. But I right. did really want to shout out a character who I feel like I hadn't seen this archetype before, which was Yoshi. I thought Yoshi was thrilling. Uh, she's just a, a type of character I don't feel like I've seen too much. One of the all-time greatest action introductions ever. Uh, you know, a great freeze frame. Good freeze frames are good now. I, I changed my mind. Um, <laughs> you know, so yeah. just just really... And also, but continues to be... The, uh, and the other part of the piece to Daisaku is, as you said, the cast of supportive adults around him. Uh, and Yoshi is a thrilling example of that. Uh, she probably gives great hugs as well. Uh, I feel like, you know, move aside Lady D, we should really all praise Yoshi instead is is my is my take here in, in 2021. Yeah, I can't disagree with any of those points. I do agree. <laughs> Daisaku is really the beating heart of the show, and I like Yoshi a lot. Um, I wish she had more screen time, but the screen time they she was given, uh, they make really good use of it. All right, so you know, it's down to two for me. I'm going to mention <laughs> both of them in my spiel. But my favorite character is Chujo. I'm going to get to Alberto in a second. But, I would have uh, voted Alberto. <laughs> I was going to go Alberto. I'm surprised you went with Chujo. Yeah, I thought you were going to go Alberto. That's fine. But go ahead. I, I'm curious. I, I want to hear. It was very close. Um, so I look at Chujo the way I looked at my dad as a kid, like with a sense of awe. Uh, there's a scene in Mad Men when Sally, uh, Don Draper's daughter, watches her father shave, and she's very captiv- captivated about the whole process. And if you've never seen the show, Don, played by the forever handsome John Hamm, is a chiseled, well-built man who oozes a very traditional sense of masculinity. Um, Slightly problematic way to phrase it, but nevertheless, he's a very, like, buttoned-up, handsome man. And I think that's Chujo without the toxicity. Um, He exerts a very gravitational force um, that pulls me in. Uh, I feel protected in his presence. I could go on about his gravity. I mean, his absolutely killer sense of style. Uh, a black tie and a white shirt that's form-fitting will never not look good on a person. I think he totally rocks the beard. Uh, Jonathan Frakes, uh, it's, it's neck and neck with John, Jonathan Frakes. I know you're listening right next to Jim Jarmusch, but um, <laughs> he's right up there with yours. Um, but for me, what elevates Chujo is his empathy, generosity, and his commitment to helping his friends and others. Unlike Go, I think Chujo is concerned about the potential consequences of their scientific endeavors. He does try to check Go a little. Um, you know, he does scrutinize the situation. He does understand that what they're doing could cause harm to people. And the respect he engenders from his colleagues really does speak volumes, um, which puts him over the edge for me. Alberto is a close second. 
but he lacks Chujo's virtue. He, I think Alberto ups the ante in terms of style. I think his late game comeback is one of the most epic scenes we've witnessed thus far on Mechanations. Um, but I guess his more villainous qualities, no matter how abstracted, put him a hair lower than Chujo for me. But both earn a good deal of respect for me as a viewer. Yeah, a couple of notes before we move on to our next beat. Uh, I just wanted to say, and on the subject of Alberto, uh, I do think that he, he en- ended up a couple higher notches for me just on the grounds of the the idea of, of uplifting his personal uh, kind of like competition beef with Taiso to the degree that he does that it is his last words on this earth uh, uh, is is such a great character dynamic. I, I really love that kind of rivalry because it's it is a a delicious comic book rivalry that really doesn't make sense to ever exist in real life, but but is such a fun dynamic. I think the my favorite version of this is the the Kate Beaton uh Hark of Vagrant uh, uh. uh, uh, uh Nemesis comics where you know those where it's the two characters that have their portraits of one another that they sleep next to, you know, like that that really is the vibe that Alberto gives in his final moments. Um, <laughs> and one of the things that I especially love about it, not to, to gush about Alberto, is that it seems one-sided. It doesn't seem like Tyso gets this dynamic <laughs> at all. <laughs> like, and that, I think, is even better. Um, but uh, uh, on the other hand, the other thing I wanted to mention about Daisaku, real, real quick, just because I feel like it's worth talking about to, to kind of uh, compound what PMC was saying about having now an archetype to to work from to kind of compare other types of this character to. I think that Daisaku is is a and Giant Robo it, writ large is good about this is a compelling argument for how this can work without deep characterization. That that there is a version of this like I think the 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 opposite side to this coin would be someone like Simone. Uh, where there the focus, or or even Shinji, where the focus is more on characterization, right? Like that, those succeed or fail depending on how you feel about the characterization. And what I would like to posit about Daisaku is that characterization isn't really the element at play when when you're when. And I think not that's not how you should evaluate the character, which sounds stupid to say that characterization isn't how you should judge it, but. I, you both understand mm-hmm. where I'm coming from, though, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. So then it's fair, then, to move on to our next category. Steven, you went last for favorite. Did you want to go first for least favorite, or did you want to kick it to me? I'll go first, just because I think that the name's going to come up at least twice, maybe three times. So my least favorite character, I bet you'd be surprised. is, uh, sorry, I scrolled ahead of my notes. That's fine. This is a little embarrassing. All right, here I am. It's Ginray. Of course it's Ginray. I don't sure. want to harp on this for too long because I feel like I really put Ginray through the ringer. But let me be clear. I don't have a problem with Ginray herself. It's just the way that she's written and the way that she's used in the show. This isn't an uncommon problem in mecha shows. I had similar issues with Yoko's characterization in Gurren Lagann, Noin and Sally in Gundam Wing, but Ginray takes the cake for the most egregious. Like I said... Ginray exists more as a plot device than a fully actualized character. I think I've written that statement uh, with multiple shows. Um, but I, I, me- I really mean it when I say it with, um, with Giant Robo. There are other, with other characters I either talked about or didn't talk about who this complaint can be leveled against, they have more 
endearing and positive characteristics, where Ginray really doesn't have too many of those in the show. She's given little to no interiority. Other characters like Daisaku and Kenji make decisions for her and speak on her behalf, which I think is particularly bad. Um, and coupled with the ending, which I don't have a problem with her sacrificing herself per se on paper, but the fact that she amounts to little more than a sacrificial pawn in the grand scheme of things, at least you know, in my opinion, um, really knocks her down a peg. I think it kind of sucks because the character has so much potential, and I really wish they tapped into that more. PMC, did you wanna? Did you wanna go next? Was this another? Did was this? Uh... Well, so I, I kind of I, I had the same plan as I did for favorite character because I was like, someone else is gonna say Ginrei first because one of us has to talk about Ginrei. The other one that I was going to bring up as one that I guess in the interest of throwing a chair and starting a fight. Uh, I really felt that Chujo was a one-hit wonder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Steven has left the Ch- podcast. Chujo is, to me, just a boss. Just a, uh, I, I did not believe him when he, when he seemed to indicate at the very end that he was, you know, really feeling for, for everybody. Uh, you know, I, I always felt like he could have been more transparent, more effective in communicating. Uh, he often seemed very distant. He is very stylish, but you know when when your boss has has the ultimate attack that will necessarily cause him to you know, sacrifice his own life. I, I, I what it, like what what is that? What does that tell me about um, about the character? That feels like an attack that you're ne- you're almost never going to use. You know, unless it's you know this, unless it's too late, uh, basically. And and it's just. It seems like a weird, a weird premise uh, for for the characters. So I don't know. I, I feel like that's sort of the the guys in suits don't trust people in suits. I gotta tell you, don't trust them. Everybody, get out your Mechanations bingo card because it's time for Ignis to talk about Hunter Hunter. So PMC, I, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. I or rather, I have an answer for you. <laughs> I know what kind of character uh, creates an ability that kills them when they use it. Uh, and it's someone who is willing to risk their life for power. Mm-hmm. Someone who might do that in the cause of justice is is willing to sacrifice themselves for others in a way that is, you know, thematically relevant for, for Giant Robo. I This is not me saying that you are incorrect to pick Chujo at all. Uh, it was I, just... I'm saying that. I am saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I am just here doing my Ignis thing of bringing up Hunter Hunter. Mm-hmm. Because, of course... Karapika's ability will will kill him if he uses mm. it improperly. Uh, he he. Uh, one of the ways that the abilities work in Hunter Hunter is that you can create a condition for yourself, and that condition acts as a multiplier for your abilities. As long as you respect the condition, if you break it, it ends up killing you most times. Um, yeah, that's that's you know just my immediate thought to that as as a uh, uh, you know uh, concept when it comes to Shujo because I, I came to the opposite conclusion that that someone develops this technique. With the plan to use it as a last resort to succeed at all costs, mm-hmm. that, is, that is the only person who designs an ability that is contingent on their life. A, it is actually, in a way, and in a way, I kind of supports what you're saying. It is the kind of narrative technique that is almost kind of a cheat for flexing valor, right? Which is kind of what you're calling out in the moment, which is that like all this is too little, too late for me. Right. Like this, this motherfucker should have been. In, throwing hands <laughs> at yeah, the spear. Like, 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 <laughs> if you need an evacuation plan just to get, you know, to throw some hands, it, it seems, I don't know. Like, I, of course, it's cool. It's cool as hell. So, like, you know, it's worth it in, in the exercise show. I, 
I will say I read the attack more as in conversation with genre conventions rather than mm. in conversation with the character. Look, I, let me be very clear that I do not agree with PMC. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is not my stance on Chujo. I'm I am just this is just me as my as in my host duties and facilitating the conversation. Um, now for for least favorite character, um, I I I don't hmm, okay. We've definitely covered the Ginray issue, but I. I to be honest, Ginray was never really on my radar for worst character. I I think it's fair to compare her to some of the other primary lady characters that we've talked about on Mechanations and how they, they can fall short of our expectations or of just reasonable expectations for, for characters to act. Um, I don't, for me, uh, I... I you know, for Yoko in particular, for me, I, I have always felt that that has been a failure of that specific context and not of a context writ large. This is a kind of character that has a bigger po- uh, possibility space than they were able to really put on screen. But at the very least with Yoko, they were able to impart in- internality, right? Like that was the thing at the very least. And Ginray doesn't have that. But but I felt bad voting for Ginray as my least favorite character because... The, we've been spending a lot of, or I've been spending a lot of time talking about how it's good, actually, that Daisaku is this way. And I, I agree that the context is different and, and it is absolutely a criticism worth leveling at Ginrei, you know, characterization where it kind of works for Daisaku. We've talked about this before, how it is in a perfect world, it would be kind of fine for Ginrei to be like she is, but we do not live in that perfect world at all. <laughs> It's just not the case. It's just clear that they cared less about Ginray than they did others. And so I didn't want to I didn't want to beat the dead horse. So for me, my least favorite character, this is gonna be probably surprising for the two of you. My least favorite character was Kome, the grand strategist. Uh because and I say this with a heavy heart, because I, I do enjoy the storytelling device of a character who is so many steps ahead that the audience couldn't possibly keep up. Uh, because the writers that are are behind that character are are making it up as they go, you know, <laughs> and, and like this is fine, but to me he's introduced like a little too late. Like it, there's something about if he was at the end of every episode, Xanatos style, regardless of how things turned out, being like yes, all according to plan. Then then at the end when. The, the plan fails miserably because of a massive misunderstanding that no one could have possibly have had context for, um, you know, without just information that the audience just doesn't have. Then it, it's a little bit weird at the end when it turns out this is yet another layer of, and of course, this is like a genre convention now. Like we were talking about it in our guest episode with Russell about how this is like the Xenogears procedure you know and and how even the the trail series takes advantage of this to a certain degree as well i just didn't i didn't find it cute this time around (laughs) i don't know did you guys have any thoughts on komei before we moved on to the next thing i think you're right to highlight how late he's introduced because when i think of other characters yeah as you said they're introduced early and often never made clear their purpose because you know part of the fun is was it really their plan all along or or, or whatever the case might be i definitely think komei felt kind of flat i guess the reason why he didn't quite rub me the wrong way was at least because i i live for that moment when when the villain experiences doubt about how things are going every shot 
where like he like puts the fan up to his face and and froze his brows like just feeds me inside uh and so yes. he was he was good at that function and when you're good at some of your basic functions i do give you some credit i agree i i really like ignis's take there i didn't view uh Kome through that lens before i really don't like Kome as engineered by the show so i've always was viewing him through that knee-jerk reaction but i do like that read uh, i just want to say i cannot we cannot leave this segment without me dumping on go uh go i'm watching you Let's keep that <laughs> oh, in mind that actually um it is a failure on my part uh but i did uh, skip over some listener a uh, listener question uh listener uh icy marie asks in who is our favorite uh, members of the the International Police Organization. Uh, P- PMC, did you want to take this first? Yeah, I really wanted to. I, I love it when you get uh, someone who's like a, a character or a team that is not necessarily flashy, but is just like so energetic and powerful. The Gen Brothers are going to stick with me for a while. The reveal that the Gen Brothers are just resonating their drums to you know exhaust the energy from the overwhelming core. Uh, is really good, and also, of course, they get to participate in that thrilling uh, drive through the field uh, in the finale. Finale is just real good. Uh, I really like them. I, I, you know, we we kind of get s- sneak uh, peeks of them uh, in the previous episodes, and they end up delivering, I think, really well uh, in the finale. So I did answer this with mine. Top tier it would be Chujo and Alberto. Second tier. Oh, are we just talking about the IPO. Or are we talking about the. Uh... I, I think it's the IPO specifically, but I, I would. I, they're all experts, yeah. I think so it was, it was IPO expert. and Magnificent Ten. Each, you know, do do a favor from each. So I mean, there you go. Yeah, Chujo. If I had to pick another one, number two would be Yoshi for the IPO. Hmm. I think my number one has got to be Issei, who has got to be MVP. Uh. Uh. But I have a. I really liked. Koshin and Kaye, to be honest. I really like how like clear that bond is at the end of the episode that Koshin has practice being a hype man for Kaye and it and it embarrasses Kaye. <laughs> I love that shit. Uh, give me more of it. I'm I'm way into it. Uh but like I don't know, I'm gonna be fucking uh, you know, basic and say Kenji. Kenji's the coolest. <laughs> He's so neat. I don't know, I'm into it. Um Yes. So, moving on to maybe the most important of our of our categories to the rubric, uh, the the star of the show in many ways, our favorite mech. Uh, hmm. I guess I went last. So, actually, I'm going to toss this to PMC. Mm. PMC, why don't you tell us your favorite mech of Giant Robo, the OVA, the day the Earth stood still? Uh, this is really hard for me. I I. <sighs> All right. So I may, I joked at the very beginning that the Akatsuki was going to be my favorite. And I think it kind of ended up still being. I think it has qualities that no other mech ends up having, which is you know the the, tra- the capacity for transforming. Uh, I think it has a great instance of the levers. We see the levers with others as as well. Um, the the dispersal of helicopter troops is a great gag. I mean, again, I I, I love trains. I'm just a fan of trains. Uh, <laughs> I'll also say though. I do. I did end up falling much harder for the Vogler sphere than I thought I would. The Vogler <sighs> sphere is delightfully creepy with all of the eyes, especially when it opens all of its eyes. Right. Uh, the big shockwave attack. Uh, I, you know, I love a, a, a sort of fortress-like mech when you have a, a you know a basement for some reason. Uh, the controls are great. The the the, like the screens are very like um, I, I think I, in one episode of this podcast I compared them to like 
the sort of like screens in within the screen you would see in like a Saturn game. Like if you're playing like a like a '90s idol uh, video recording game where you get to watch video of your favorite idol in the Sega Saturn, that's what the screens look like uh, in inside the Vogelsphere control uh, control seat. Uh, and it's just such a, a mashup of wonderful. I, I'm always an advocate on on mechanations for spooky spooky mechs. Uh, it is a mech. It's an eye. That's that's human. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No Definitely. no no. I would vote the Vulgar Sphere as a mech as well. I gotta say, in in regards to uh, maybe this is spoilers. In regards <laughs> to the 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 train mech, mm-hmm. I do not know if that one has a name. I okay. I, I looked and I it looked and it. I looked. Yeah. I I don't the- think. Yeah, the ketchup one doesn't either. Those are the yeah. two that I think remain unnamed. Yes, I think that train one, that one doesn't have a name, and I think that Spiky Boy, the ketchup motherfucker, as Steven likes to call him, <laughs> is is also unnamed. I couldn't. I listen just because of the the resources I found. I found a couple that said that it was unnamed, and at that point, I just gave up. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm sure we're gonna get like three emails or messages saying, "Actually, this is its name." Yeah, exactly. That's fine. I just want to be clear so everybody knows what you're mm-hmm. talking. What yeah, we're talking yeah, yeah, about for sure. The Vogler Sphere and the green train that we see the uh, transform in the first episode were PMC's choices. Uh, fine choices. Excellent choices. Steven, uh, tell us. Real quick. Oh, PMC, yes. I really like your description of the Vogler uh, control panel. Uh, you, my, your commentary got my mind working. It reminds me of like the OS system in Zero Experiments Lane mm-hmm. or even the Lane video game for uh, PlayStation, which never came over here. Or it also reminded me of... Oh fuck! I'm building this up, and I just it escaped my mind. Nope, I lost it. But it oh, reminds me of the lane game. It's gone forever. Yeah, it's fine. Absolutely, we we all uh, respect uh, Genya's gamer chair for 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 sure <laughs> and for truly. Uh, uh, Steven, I was going to toss it to you. Your favorite mech of Giant Robo? It's Giant Robo. Yeah, of course. It's, it's, yes. I have the very you know I guess plain Jane answer here. Um, I'll, so I'll, I'll be. I'll, I'll go ahead and say mine is also Giant Robo, just so we can, just so we can. <laughs> yeah, I had, a feeling, I, fe- I had a feeling we'd be in lockstep here. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I feel like I've emphasized the points I'm about to enumerate pretty frequently throughout our coverage of Giant Robo, and even a bit during our run of the Big O Season 1. So if I'm being redundant, I'm, I apologize. I'll try to be as economical as possible here. But I'm at, but at the end of all things, at the end of Episode 7, I'm both in awe of and pretty smitten with and even a little terrified of Robo. Um, everything about his design captivates me. As I've expressed before, it's Pharaoh headdress, um, in addition to be a really striking design choice, because it really stands out, uh, confers godhood on Robo. There's something very otherworldly and mysterious about it. When we talk about my least favorite mech, which might not be the one you're thinking of, um, it doesn't live up to this quality in particular. And all this is enhanced by its scale. Robo's gigantic. Whenever it moves, I can't help st- but stare an almost religious devotion, as if as if I'm witnessing an apocalyptic event. The clincher is that Robo is not a monolith. It has a lot of personality. You have its very cool exhaust ports um, to its fully functioning mechanical tear ducts and numerous other small touches besides. Robo really exudes a real warmth that other mechs do not. Like, I love the Tall Geese 3. I wouldn't call the Tall Geese 3 my friend. But Robo is my friend. Because as the show continually points out, Robo is more than a machine. It's a person. Uh, Someone who both reacts and interacts with the greater world around them. And it does so with a lot of empathy. So in summation, Robo is real and strong and is my friend. 
Yeah, I mean, just to compound, just so we can get this over with quickly, uh, Giant Robo, it, it's, I, to me, it's not even really fucking close, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, the, the Giant Robo rules, uh, my brain only hears static when people complain to me about its design, and especially the Pharaoh headdress. Uh, it, it, to me, especially in this iteration, uh, I've I've always had trouble connecting to the idea of the the giant robots as like a as like a slasher villain or as a horror figure. Like as an adult now, it's easier for me to abstract that and understand that as an angle. But as a child, it was difficult for me to to wrap my head around it. And I think it has a lot to do with design philosophy clashing with the 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 narrative philosophy. Right? I'm I'm actually really interested in this as we go into 0079 next to see if that's something that I'm able to because I've 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 heard that that pitch about the original Gundam before and I've I've never really been able to square that circle for myself. But I'm curious to see revisiting that with that lens how that uh, lands. But but Robo the way they play Robo is completely consistent with that kind of thing of of ally to uh, to good and and nightmare to evil, you know, like it, it plays like a a horror slasher villain as it's coming towards Ivan, and it's fantastic. I I think the scale is incredible. I think when it gets to fire everything, it, it it's really really exciting in a way that I typically don't care for, like projectile weaponry as like a final, like heavy arms has never really mm. been my favorite for that reason, you know, like. Uh, 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 but with that all said, he's got so much character and I really, really love the ambiguity of the way it's engineering works. I, we've highlighted it a couple times, but I really, really dig how much gray space there is. If you were someone who needs the giant robots to have a completely scientific explanation for the stuff that's going on between the tear ducts as exhaust points, the, the automatic danger locator, you know, uh, the some of the the wireless connectivity bullshit like that all that stuff uh, to me creates a more beautiful whole whole that's a bad way of putting it welcome to my whole no um, <laughs> a more beautiful sum summation of of you know these these particular choices like when you we're going to talk about this writ large for the show in general but the combination of the visual direction the orchestral score and the the emotive storytelling choices giant robo it just hits on all those levels because of that kind of elemental choices about its design all right I, i'm gonna do least favorite i'm gonna start us off at least favorite right now because i'm i'm gonna throw i'm throwing more chairs I picked up the Chujo chair and I'm throwing it directly at PMC uh, because uh, my least favorite. I really loved all of the Doofy BF machines. I loved them all, uh, except I I ne- I've held this back for like seven episodes. I've never really liked the train. <laughs> I always thought the train was kind of dumb. <laughs> yeah, this this is great. It's got Eat drills. It, PMC, it's Come revenge. On. You love <laughs> drills. Got, look, I do. You're right. It's got <laughs> drills. You're not wrong. I just. <laughs> Okay. You know what this – real quick, this is a funny joke. I got to get out of here. Yeah. You know what this reminds me of? The scene in Batman Begins when Falcone is shot. This is what Ignis is doing to you. <laughs> Falcone says hi. It's yeah. for saying Chujo's the really fair character. <laughs> I took out my little gun. <laughs> no, listen, listen. I had to pick a least favorite that was on screen, and I didn't like the idea of picking one of the – uh, uh, preview ones mm-hmm. because we really first off they have so much character and and because we were only with them for like I don't know 
three seconds each. I don't remember how long they're on screen. It felt bad to pick one of my least favorite one of those. And when it comes to the Uranus, I, I really dig its like sense of character. Uh, when it comes to the GR2, I I really like the idea of it's the crescent moon thing it makes okay it's bad but it, it makes it endears it to me and i like its kind of simplistic color scheme it, it, it kind of communicates it as a as a kind of stealth unit for for giant robo even though it is enormous and hidden in a mountain um and so like it kind of just leaves the train like the, the thing about it pmc it, uh, to me is that i wish it it wasn't it didn't transform into essentially like Still a train, but with a face. <laughs> it's kind of a thing that I, I, I don't like about it. I, I kind of wish that it was more transformed than it is. And, and like, that's it's not really a problem. It's still mm-hmm. really cool. Mm-hmm. It's still like a train mech. And so I can't I can't hate on that. It's just never been my favorite because I, I wanted it to do something a little bit more. Like, I, I was kind of waiting for it to get on its, like, train legs and stand up to robo and uh, and of course it's not on screen long enough to happen like the purpose of this thing is to get bodied you know um but i I just i i had i saw so much potential in it pmc (laughs) pmc would you like your chance for revenge what what was your least favorite uh, necessarily because like here's the thing is that i i know i am not saying giant robo i think giant robo is great it it definitely in my opinion giant robo improved over the course of the show as we got to see more of its armaments i I think it you know continued to be dynamic in that way um i i think if i had to pick one that had actual combat screen time uh i would probably throw gallop under the bus oh yeah gallop Gallop just kind of sucked um but uh, you know just the world wasn't going too much going on there um it was hanging out on the mound didn't really uh, we didn't get to see what it was capable of besides uh, not killing Tetsugu. Yeah, it didn't even fucking kill Tetsugu. Didn't even t- kill Tetsugu. <laughs> and, uh, and just sort of, I guess, threatening. Uh, <laughs> I mean, look, if I was high on a mountain, some wind would be threatening. I would be very concerned about some high winds uh, on a mountainside. Uh, you know, if you're having to walk through the snow, if you're not an elf. If you're an elf, you're probably okay because you're walking on top of the snow. <laughs> That's true. It's true. Checks out. Checks out. But I don't. I, yeah, I don't really know. Yeah, I, 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 I wish I had something else to to dunk. I mean, generally, the designs were were, were fun. You, know, I, I would agree with all the comments about about the Uranus. So I really don't think I have um another one to dunk on. I, I, I might have said GR two, but I just like rocket punches too much. Agreed. Yeah, same. This was my struggle with even picking the the train one. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't even know if I hate the train one. It just, I just wanted. I just wanted more yeah. from it. I'm I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Steven, tell us your least favorite of the mechs in Giant Robo. All right. So unlike Big Gold, which I have the most scorn for, I'm going to choose Neptune. Not oh. because it's the least appealing, though it's close, but because it represents some real waste of potential. All right. So on paper, Neptune, uh, is, it's one of Big Fire's protectors. It lurks right. deep in the ocean. Uh, it sounds dope. Sounds like some sort of, like, something right out of a Greek myth. Um, it embodies the elemental and enigmatic nature of these divine robo- robots, like a lot of the ones we saw in the Big O, mm. that I find so interesting. But I feel that in reality, though, Neptune's design comes up short. I think the anchor's a really cool touch. Don't get me wrong, the anchor's dope. Uh, but outside the anchor, they basically threw a paper bag over its horned head and <laughs> splashed some seaweed on it and called it a day. 
and I wanted something a little bit more, not a little bit more primordial. Primordial is such a loaded and abstract concept, but like straight up primordial. And I wanted something a little bit more personality, like something very terrifying, almost Cthulian even. And uh, Neptune's planar, less inspired design, at least to me, failed to capture that. I think the anchor for me makes me think of uh, there is a, a Dota hero named uh, Leviathan whose whose primary mm. weapon is an anchor that he uses to smash people. And so I, I I just think of unfortunately I just think of positive memories of, of Dota playing Dota with with PMC and how PMC would always use uh, Gush to gush. steal kills from yeah, halfway across the map. Yeah, was, no, I'm not even complaining. It was a good time. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> All right. So I I don't I've got no beef with that as a choice. I agree that it, it's another case of kind of uh, wasted potential. Uh, now we come to I, to me the the question I had the most I struggled the most with, and which is was there a trope or an idea in the show you thought was well executed? Was there one you felt didn't deliver? So I I have an answer of sorts, but does anyone want to take take the take the reins here? Ooh, I'll go. So okay. this is something I haven't talked about yet. I held it back just because we were so effusive in our praise of the ending of Giant Rope that I thought I didn't want to be a downer or just oh, no. you know, upset the, the mood. It's it's a small thing, but it does um, it does it's like it is a little bit of a thorn to my side. Uh, my least favorite trope, I guess, at the end is Vogler's seemingly perfect Shizuma fix. So <laughs> let me be clear: I like the ending, the thematic arc or arcs for the most part, come full circle. Uh, at its core, Giant Robo argues that humanity needs to be to be to more critically interrogate the energy sources that we too universally rely on, or more generally, just it argues for a more environmentalist message, or just to be a more environmentally minded as you go about your day. But also it stresses, though not as strongly, that we should curb consumption to safeguard, you know, our future. Um, and I think, by and large, the show lands that message. I think, though, the ending slightly blunts it by introducing this technological cure-all at the final moment. And it would be super easy to correct. So, at the end of the show, the Shizuma Drive has regained its mythical status. According to the script in the show, there's no reason for humanity to curb consumption now because Vogler seemingly fixed every single issue with it. They could have easily threw in a line, like by Go or my, my boy Chujo, and just said, you know, I'm going to think about this more or... I'm going to do a little more research in the future, or as you know, I'm resting, I'm going to critically interrogate these things. Not using that language, but you get what I mean. Right. And I wish the ending gave us a little bit more nuance in that regard, because I actually think the show's environment, environmental message um, is pretty nuanced overall. And better yet, I think it's pretty consistent outside of this small issue at the end. PMC, what about you? Uh, I wanted to highlight... What I enjoyed about a positive thing, which is that embedding the tragedy in generational transfer of knowledge, uh, and it's a that's a common theme. It's a compelling theme. I also think that the way it's deployed here, uh, hopefully, reaches people as deeply humbling. Uh, you have a lot of folks in this show uh, who are struggling with you know with what it means to to sort of live up to their forebears' legacy. We also have a lot of people who think they know <laughs> what it means to love their forebears' legacy. Uh, you know, and one, certainly with Genya's case, it is e- his own ego that's getting in the way. Uh, but even with with Genya and Go, they don't really have the right of it either. You know, they they you know obviously they're more sympathetic characters because they're trying to do right. Uh, they're not trying to hurt people and as a part of a vengeance quest. But 
you know, it is by whatever the case may be, you know, for whatever reason the miscommunication happens, it's difficult to really know what that legacy really means. Um, and, you know, and I think hopefully a, a message from watching the ending, I, I, I would feel the best outcome is to come away from the ending thinking like, do I really know, you know, the, the things that have been handed down to me? Was there miscommunication more so than saying like, well, you know, my parents wouldn't have hidden the voicemail in the in the sphere. <laughs> That's right. No, no, no. Super good point. Really like the the put the way both of you put both of those points. Uh, I'm sorry, PMC. Was there? Did you have a um? Was that the end of uh, your? Yeah, I, uh, I think I, I think uh, it's the end of that. I, and also, I mean, if I was going to make the flip side, uh, I still don't like the big kaiju plan episode three. I'm still going to hate that for the rest of time. <laughs> Ooh, PMC, that and Shuja. Yeah, you better I, watch yourself. Yeah, I think uh, I I think for me. Uh, there was hmm, this really took me the longest to get an answer to because and, and people who follow me on Twitter will see that I I've I've struggled with how to talk about Giant Robo. I guess struggle is maybe not the right word. Uh, it, it's such an, a good exercise in narrative fundamentals combined with top notch visual direction and powerful emotive orchestral swings. But but I think it's done with a layer of sophistication because of the way that those elements come together with the storytelling so when i talk about what i think is well executed about the show it's it's really in the the fundamentals like which sounds such a like like a vague broad compliment for for storytelling but it really gets that the core of its story needs to be supplemented by all these elements but not like superseded by it never gets caught up in characterizing people too much instead of doing its plot or plotting too much instead of doing its story or story too much instead of doing its plot any of those things it kind of works on the level it needs to work and and so i had a hard time picking a single thing that i i I thought was done well uh because i think it's all done well i i really feel like there there isn't a strongest thing that i haven't already talked about like if if I didn't already choose Daisaku Kusama as my favorite character, I would talk about how I feel like as a boy protagonist, a child protagonist, they have succeeded in making an element that feels shoehorned, being transforming it into something that is narratively essential. You know, like that that is can be it feel impossible to do, especially from an American point of view, where we're so used to media that is transparently aimed at captivating a particular younger audience, and so those elements feel particularly like egregious and shoehorned, right? But I think that the flip side of this is that it hinges on accepting an exercise at face value that is one inherently an unclosed loop. The Genya plot ends, but so much of it is left purposefully unconcluded. That's a huge ask, right? Two, uh, it's an outrageous setting where very little is explained. Almost almost nothing about the characters is explained at all when you watch it. And three, it asks you to suspend your disbelief over and over and over again. And, and you know, this is can vary from things like character deaths to character survivals to what is possible for a character to achieve from moment to moment. Like, it is constantly asking you over and over to buy into what it's doing. And that's a lot of bumps to get over. Like, this is this is where it's hard to be a critic in, and separate 
what I perceive as my personal taste and how none of that bumps for me and acknowledging how that stuff is is an ask for for many 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 people you know uh this was something i struggled with when trying to sum up my feelings about giant robo writ large like basically i don't have a good concise answer to either of these questions it's like what did i like what trope did i think was good uh the show (laughs) and what did i didn't like well the show (laughs) like the things that they they ask from you are inherently what stops it from being basically the most popular thing on earth, which it maybe deserves to be. <laughs> All right. And on that note, you know what? I'm, I'm here. I'm doing it. Uh, why don't I start our, our roundup? Um, I, I feel like I sort of dodged answering question three, you know, <laughs> and I do this a lot because, uh, you know, uh, I give myself a lot of leeway in this regard. And, and I also feel like sometimes I'm, I'm the one who's talking the most on the podcast anyway, and I need to shut the fuck up. So, the thing I want to say is that it because it's 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 wrapped up in my feelings overall. I, I Giant Robo was a huge struggle for me to talk about because I just loved every single moment of it. I it works perfectly for me. It feels like it was made special just for me, despite it being awesome in every single way and easy for literally anyone to watch at the drop of a hat. It feels like it is almost impossible to convince people to check it out. And I and I don't I feel like I understand why, even though a lot of the the reasons why are very easy to counter or explain away or something like that. It feels like the bare bones nature of some of the characterization makes it difficult to see what it even is, right? And so if you give Giant OVA a chance, it will treat you to some of the finest animated robot storytelling you can even see from this time period, period. Um, and if you can connect with the values it espouses, the childlike sense of wonder and hope, then it will sing to you. It will it will vibrate with emotion, even in its quote-unquote incomplete form. For Ignis, this was a solid 9 out of 10. One of the best things we've watched on Mechanations. Who wants to go next? You hit a lot of my points, so I'll, I'll be brief. Um, I, real quick, we talk about Imagawa a lot as a director, and I think that's merited. Not just we. I mean, the, the community at large really tends to praise Imagawa as a director, and I, I think he, that praise is merited. Um, but he's a really efficient writer, too. Out of these seven episodes, Imagawa completely wrote six of them, two through seven, and he wrote, co-wrote the first one with another writer. So you know, he had a lot of responsibility, and I think he's really effective as a writer, particularly how he emotionally calibrates a, uh, a scene through very efficient writing. So the way he employs pathos isn't saccharine to me. It's very genuine, and it's so hard to pull off um, in writing because it can come across as forced. Some of, the, some of these characters, we only spend a handful of minutes with them. But in, within that short amount of time, Iwagamo makes us care for them, most of them, whether we're rooting for Daisaku as Giant Robo burst into the sky or mourning Yoshi and Taiso's sacrifice, screaming from the rafters when Alberto dishes out some revenge to Genya, we feel a distinct emotional connection to these characters, and that's so difficult to pull off, and Imagawa does it so well. The show is so fucking stylish. The animation is pitch perfect. Speaking of pitch perfect, I, the music, um, I, I feel like it would be redundant every episode to say how great Amano scores. It does such elevating work. I will say, it's going to be very interesting when we get to our year-end uh, ranking, because as we'll talk about soon, we're really only going to get through three things, and I'm going to put some interesting restrictions, so we're really going to have to make some tough choices when we talk about Tier 1. I'm very, very curious how that all dishes out, because I'm not sure how I could 
you know, bump some of these shows down or up, whether yes. that show be Giant Robo or something else, just because how excellent it is alongside some of the other excellent shows that we've watched. Yeah, I'm going to give it a straight 9.5. Not to up the ante on Ignis. I just had 9.5 on my, uh, my document. I think we'll have to subtitle that episode the, the Tears of Ignis, we'll, we'll call it, <laughs> once, once we come across that, that wrap-up. PMC, why don't you round up your thoughts on Giant Robot? Sure. I mean, this is clearly an unparalleled spectacle uh, on multiple levels. Uh, and, you know, I would, like my co-host, I would highlight uh, the incredible animation. Every action sequence is unbelievably thrilling. Uh, but I also think, too, the, the slow bits are very captivating as well. When you have uh, the characters communicating with each other, uh, there's so much going on with expression, with, uh, with you know, uh, body language. Uh, and, and it applies to all the characters, too, I, I think, as well. You know, I, I, Genya goes through as much of a range as, as anybody else. And I think it's really, you know, impressive to see him kind of especially the rapid fire of how he changes emotionally in the finale. I think it's like a great example of how the characters are, are wielded along multiple, you know, those multiple paths of being animated, of being written. Uh, and then also, you know, I mentioned the music stuff. I'm not really, I'm not really a fan of opera, but I think the way they use uh, that, you know, that one particular piece that they, they, they license for this and they, you know, and the way they deploy it as, as a motif for, for when they're getting to this tragedy of Bastral and the mystery of Bastral, uh, I, I think that is used very well. Uh, in our, I believe in our history episode, we talked a little bit about you know, kind of the, the twin peaciness of it. And I think that kind of spirit is invoked very effectively. Uh, this is just it, it's just a, a thing that you should see. Like if you ever see those those books or like, you know, a hundred movies to watch before you die or whatever, anything like that. Giant Robo should be on there. It should be watched once. As I mentioned earlier in the pod, it's not like perfectly my style. If you're going to ask me, do I want to rewatch Big O or this first? I'm probably going to rewatch Big O just because that sits so deeply in my style. But really, really, like, this should be watched once, at least. It is uh, It is astonishing. And I'm astonished that I, you know, Ignis went over a little bit before maybe why this hasn't reached a, a, a wider audience. But I'm just, I'm surprised that, like, I don't hear people singing the praises of this all the time. Like, this is just, this, this feels like it should be a bigger deal. Yeah, completely. Did you have it's a, such a uh, numeric it's such score? Easy recommend too. Oh, oh numeric sorry. score. Yeah, uh, I oh, God, see the problem with this. The problem with this is that people are going to find past numeric scores and they're going to think it's somehow objective. Um, no, I, no, I, I would gonna, call that a mistake. I'm going to say I'm going to say eight. I'm going to say eight. It's really good. Watch it. Yeah, I would say to people who are concerned about the numeric scores, first <laughs> off. Keep in mind always that I, I I regard them with contempt, and so you know keep that mind that in mind when regarding any of our scores. But they shouldn't really be compared to each other as much as they are contextual for each particular piece. I would say I just live like in fear ever since Steven said I gave Pat Lee what was it Pat Lee two like a two or something. <laughs> I felt your scorn. <laughs> no, yeah, no, that was um, no. I think uh, Steven still holds the the record for for lowest score for any of the shows that okay. we've covered, and 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 I wish in hindsight that I had gone lower on mine, but that's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It is the point is we loved Steven. I think this communicates exactly the correct thing, which is that it was 
very much an Ignis thing. Steven really connected to it, and PMC really enjoyed it, even if it isn't normally his shit. And in fact, the high score should be regarded as a an enormous boon mm-hmm. to Giant Robo, considering it's not really your shit. That is basically how you should regard these scores. And that concludes, I think, our coverage of Giant Robo, an OVA that we enjoyed a whole, whole lot. We were very, very happy to cover it. We hope that you enjoyed our coverage. One last shout-out to Dimotes Z, LOL Clumpy, uh, Trent R, Trenton R, uh, uh, and the Blue Spaceman, Icy Marie, for, for chiming in. Anybody who tweeted at us, who enjoys the tweets that we put out, either about Coin Swords or not, uh, we appreciate all of you. Uh, anyone who wants to chime in for any thoughts about Mechanations, whether that's about any of the shows that we've covered or shows that we will cover in the future or requests or what have you, you can tweet at any one of us. I'm at Ignismatics. PMC is at PMC Trilogy. Steven Hero is at underscore Steven underscore Hero on, on Twitter. And you can catch any of us at Mechanations Pod uh, on, online as well. Uh, in addition to that, you can email us at mechanationspod at gmail.com. All three of us keep an eye on that email box. So if you have a question for one of us specifically, we will see it one way or the other. Um, on, on that note, one of the, the last things we want to announce, uh, pretty soon we will begin coverage of our next show, which will be the original Gundam series, 0079. Uh, We will be watching the series, uh, which you can catch, I believe, on Funimation these days. And also Crunchyroll, I think? Um, And uh, so we will not be covering the recap movies. We're going to be doing the actual series. Uh, So with that in mind, if you've got any questions about that, hit us up at any of those spots that I just let you know. Uh, Let's see. Did we have anything else we wanted? Oh, next week we're doing something a little bit different. It will be a uh, flashback interview episode as opposed to one of our normal coverage. So normal coverage will begin again the week of not the 5th, but the 12th. The the week of the 12th, uh, specifically the 14th is when you can expect the Mechanation's normal coverage to begin. Is that correct? Yep, that'll be right. That'll be our our history episode. And uh, and I think first episode, but don't quote me on that. We'll be communicating that on Twitter to be sure. Right, yes. We will let you know what to expect. If uh, any of you Tomino heads have an interview you want me to read, feel free. I have been reading and I have many more interviews to read. Uh, as we'll talk about, Tomino is a very interesting interviewee. He has a very unique way of answering questions, and I'll keep it at that. I'm pointing at my fleshy crotch right now, <laughs> and, and some of you will know what that means, and I apologize to the rest of you who don't. Uh, in any case, I was one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox. Steven Hero. PMC Trilogy. And you can catch us next time where we're uh, trying desperately not to be yelled at by either Tamino or Oshii. I do not think we will succeed, although at least one of us has been positively reviewed by the director of Palette Yes. Yeah. All right, all right, here comes the intro, here comes we go, here goes the intro, Uh uh-huh, let's go.